Hello, and welcome to The Broad Chronicles, a women's history podcast celebrating the lives and stories of remarkable women in the world. I'm Kayla, and in this episode, we're going to talk about a veritable icon, that venerable matriarch, that invaluable leader of the British Empire, Queen Victoria. In the last episode, we explored the life of Charlotte Augusta of Wales, Victoria's first cousin and aunt by marriage. To briefly recap, Victoria's father and her uncles, including the future King George IV, had all failed to produce a legitimate heir between them. Up to his eyeballs in debt and looking for some quick cash, George IV decided to enter a quid pro quo arrangement with his own father, who wanted an heir to the throne, and get married. He married a cousin, Caroline of Brunswick, but it was an ill-fated match that only resulted in one child, Charlotte Augusta of Wales, who became the heir to the throne behind her father. She grew from a precocious firecracker of a little girl to a vivacious, though impulsive young woman who frequently found herself in the middle of her parents' arguments. She also had a penchant for scandal, getting herself involved in a couple of love matches that raised a few eyebrows. Ultimately, she met her match in Leopold of Saxe-Coburg-Salfeld, who she married within a few short years. Charlotte had a relatively happy marriage with Leopold, who was also Victoria's uncle, and they soon were expecting their first child. Ultimately, Charlotte would pass away shortly after giving birth to his stillborn son. Her death reawakened the scramble for a legitimate heir once more. So, we need to discuss the aftermath of Charlotte's death and what ultimately led to the birth of Victoria. And the first thing was the race for a new heir. King George had eight sons, six of whom survived to adulthood. And if you're not familiar with how the laws of inheritance worked in the 18th century and 19th century in England, basically, it was the king's son who went first. And if the son had children, then it went to his boys and then his girls. But if that son didn't have any kids, it went to the next son and on down the line. Boys went before girls. It went oldest to youngest boy, then oldest to youngest girl. So King George had six living sons, none of them who had a legitimate child. And then Charlotte was born, and for a time it looked like they were going to avoid that whole situation, and then Charlotte died, and her son died. So that leaves us with his six sons. So first off the bat was George IV. We've already been over him in detail. He was married to Carolina Brunswick. Their only child was Charlotte, and she died. Their relationship was terrible, and they had no more kids. Next up was Frederick, the Duke of York. He married Princess Frederica of Prussia in 1796, but died without any children in 1827. Following him was the third son, William, the Duke of Clarence. We kind of talked about him in the last episode. He was the father of George Fitch Clarence that uh, Charlotte had a little bit of a of a fling with. He married Princess Adelaide of Saxe-Meiningen in 1818. I'm also going to preface this by saying there's about to be a bunch of German words coming up that I'm going to do my best to pronounce, but please forgive me if I butcher them. So prior to his marriage, the Duke of Clarence had a longtime mistress and several children. When he married Adelaide, they still hadn't had any children by the time Victoria was born. So the fourth person, and the one most crucial to our story at this point when we pick up, is Edward, the Duke of Kent. Like his older brother, William, Edward also had a long-term mistress. His nephew-in-law, Charlotte's husband Leopold, had two siblings who are also going to enter the chat at this moment. Ernest, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, and Victoire, sometimes also referred to as Victoria. I'm probably going to call her Victoire from here just for the sake of clarity. About Victoire, so she was born in 1786 in Coburg. She married her first husband, Charles, Prince of Leiningen, with whom she had two children, Prince Carl and Princess Theodora. Her first husband died in 1814, and she assumed the regency for her son, who was still a minor at the time. And then by 1818, Edward, who had also been around once earlier in her life, came around again, and they got married in a hot hurry. 
So their married life was a fast and furious affair. The Duke of Kent arrived in Coburg on May 26th and quickly charmed Victoire's family. They were married in Coburg on May 29th, three days later, with a blessing over the marriage held at Kew Palace in July of that year. Their living arrangements were also a little on the uh, colorful side. Kind of like his brothers, the Duke of Kent had issues with debt. I feel like I need to pause here and say the Duke of Kent is Edward's title. He was technically the Duke of Kent in Strathern. Strathern? It's one of those words that I've always seen spelled out, but I've never actually heard people say out loud, so I'm doing my best. So he had a ton of debt, and at first he and Victoire were going to attempt to live in England, but it was just cheaper for them to move to Germany, and that was what they did. Their domestic life in Germany was good. Um, the Duchess loved being at home. She was from Germany. And at, at this point, I should probably also throw in a reminder that Germany wasn't the country of Germany that we know it today. It was a bunch of smaller principalities and duchies and counties where everybody kind of spoke the same language, but they were kind of all doing their own thing. Um, think of it as closer to like city states in like Greece or Italy. That was kind of the vibe at least from my impressions. And remember, I am an English teacher, not a history teacher, so feel free to, if you are more learned than I am, um, impart me with wisdom. I would appreciate it. So their home life was good, and the Duke had a chance to throw himself into all of his hobbies. Like any good dad, he loved a home improvement project, and he set himself to renovating their first home. But not long after the wedding, because remember, this is the 19th century and birth control doesn't exist, aside from like becoming a nun and never seeing a man in your life. I don't, I don't know. Uh, they were soon preparing for the birth of their first child. Um, not long after the wedding, the Duchess became pregnant and... Edward was keen on his child being born in London to solidify uh, the kid's legitimacy and his claim on the throne. I mean, I don't know what gets more legitimate than being the product of two lawfully married parents who are of the same religion, but who knows? I don't live in England in the 1800s. I, I don't know. So at this point, the Duke of Kent decides they're going to pack up and head back to England. And why they waited so long to go, I'm not sure, but they were worried that Victoire was going to give birth on the way back to England because she was eight months pregnant and had to endure a 430-mile journey back to England, mostly in a carriage and in boats. And remember, there are not shock absorbers and power steering in a carriage that is pulled by horses. And there's also not air conditioning. And this is May, so well, it's technically April at this point, but I digress. So along with them came Victoire's daughter, Theodora, their servants, the doctors, the maids, and their pet birds and dogs. They just brought the whole menagerie with them. By April of 1819, they had arrived back in England, and then it just became a game of hurry up and wait. So like he did in Germany? The Duke pitched himself into home improvement projects. Um, they were settled up in Kensington Palace, and their accommodations were actually um, inhabited by our old friend Princess Caroline of Brunswick. So they had been abandoned for a little while, and the apartments were run down. So the Duke just threw himself into renovating everything. He literally finished the day before his daughter was born. So the Duchess goes into labor and she is in labor for six hours. Because remember, even though this is her and the Duke's first child together, this is her third baby, her youngest child, her last child. Um, interesting fact about Princess Victoria, she was delivered by a female obstetrician, Frau Charlotte Seibold. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's either Seibolt or Seibolt. Bold, not Bolt. No. Excuse my American accent. 
So there are plenty of stories about historical fathers being disappointed by the birth of a daughter. We are looking at you, Henry VIII. You may be up for um, scrutiny one day here. The Duke of Kent was very proud of his daughter. And you have to keep in mind, at this point, England had already had four queens regnant. That means a woman that ruled in her own right. So we've had Mary I, Elizabeth I, Mary II, and Queen Anne. And Victoria would not be the first woman to rule in her own right. So he, he's just tickled to death to have, to have a child. And he's very proud of his little girl. Um, various dignitaries arrived to confirm the birth of the princess and her parentage. This literally means like people who were in the vicinity of the room where the duchess was giving birth. Not, I don't think any of them were actually like there watching, but you know, at this point in history, that particular event was not unheard of. Um, a side note, Marie Antoinette passed out from the amount of people that were present in her chamber when she gave birth to her first child. So I guess uh, the Duchess was lucky in this regard. Frau Seibold soon left to return to Germany to attend the delivery of Princess Louise, uh, the Duchess of Saxe-Coburg, the Duchess's sister-in-law. So remember, we have Victoire, Leopold, and they have a brother named Ernest, and this would be his wife. Um, the 19-year-old Princess Louise of Saxe-Coburg was expecting her second child, a boy by the name of Francis Charles Augustus Albert Emmanuel, who would be called Albert by his family. But we're going to stick a pin in that fact for right now. So the baby's christening, um, the christening of the soon-to-be Princess Victoria was a hot-ass mess, as we would say in my family. Uh, the Mopey Zoo Lion, also known as the Prince Regent, re-enters the story at this point. The birth of his niece had the Prince Regent feeling some kind of way about the loss of his own daughter and, by extension, his grandchild. As it stood, the baby was the first legitimate grandchild of George III, currently in line to the throne. And some sort of larger christening or celebration was expected, but that is not what happened. Because remember, George III is locked up in a room not knowing anything about anything because he was in the middle of a mental break at this point, um, one that he would ultimately not recover from. So the Prince Regent wrote and said that the christening would have to be a small affair in the cupola room of Kensington Palace, and they were only allowed to invite eight guests in attendance. So, when it came to choosing godparents, they had a rather illustrious list for the little princess. The Tsar of Russia, Alexander III, wished to be one of the sponsors of the new princess and became one of her godparents. And then her other godparents included the Duke's sister, Princess Charlotte. So this is a different Princess Charlotte than the one that has passed away. It is her aunt, one of the sisters of the Duke of Kent. The Duchess's mother, Princess Augusta. And the Mopey Zoo Lion himself, Prince George, the Prince Regent. Now, it is tradition to name the infants after their godparents in some capacity, and this whole process becomes a headache. Her proposed name was Victoire Georgiana Alexandrina Charlotte Augusta for her mother and her godparents, but the Prince Regent uh, pumped the brakes on that. And I mean... He waited until the absolute last minute to make a decision. So the night before the christening, he said he couldn't have his name before the czar's name, but he couldn't have his name after the czar's name, and that he would tell them what the baby's name would be the next day. Um, this is where some of my vitriol in episode number one comes from for the Prince Regent. He literally waited right up until the moment that the Archbishop of Canterbury was holding the baby over the baptismal font to bestow her name upon her. And he literally stood there and hemmed and hawed. And when I say he, I'm talking about the Prince Regent. He hemmed and hawed and finally said Alexandrina as her first name. The Duke pressed him for another name because 
the baby can't just have one name. She needs a middle name, too. And he suggested the name Elizabeth. And the regent got annoyed with his brother and said they should name her after the mother, but not to put the mother's name before the czar's. So, finally, the little baby was christened Alexandrina Victoria, but was called Drina by her mother. Now, shortly after the hullabaloo from her birth calmed down, the family had to find inexpensive lodgings, and they went to Devon. Um, Little Drina, as we will call her for right now, even though that is not the name she will go by in the rest of her life, she was a happy and healthy little baby. Um, Another interesting fact about little baby Drina, her parents had her vaccinated against smallpox. I guess the better word here would be inoculated against smallpox. Um, During this time, another important player in Victoria's life enters the chat. One Baroness Louise Lazen was hired by the Duke to be the governess of Victoria's half-sister, Theodora. Lazen would be with Victoria ultimately into her adult years. So even though she's hired to be Theodora's teacher, she ends up being Victoria's governess as well. While all of this is happening, the Duke still held out hope that his debts would be paid or forgiven and his little family would be allowed to stay in London, but that ultimately did not happen. Um, His family basically ignored him. So they moved into their new home, Woolbrook Cottage, on Christmas Day of 1819. The family and their staff were unhappy in the cramped and cold living quarters, and they decided that they were going to return to Germany in the spring. This plan gets derailed almost immediately. The Duke ends up catching a cold that winter, and he tries really hard to fight it. He ends up writing his last letter on January 6, 1820, and over the course of the next few days, he begins to deteriorate. By January 12th, he was delirious, vomiting, and suffering from chest pains, and his doctors tried some good old-fashioned 19th century medicine, and by that I mean bleeding. And over the course of the following week, he didn't make any improvement, and the royal physician arrived and proceeded to cup the duke. Now, if any of you have seen um, Bridgerton or Queen Charlotte, you're probably like, oh, that sounds dirty. Um, it was dirty, but not dirty like that. Cupping is where cuts are made And then a hot glass cup is taken and placed over the wound to draw out the blood and the, quote, bad humors. Because we are working on the miasma theory of disease right now and not germ theory. And apparently this is an excruciating endeavor. I can only imagine that having hot glass applied to a cut on your arm is not going to feel good. Um, The Duke was ultimately bled of six pints of blood. And when cupping was called for again, the Duke burst into tears at the prospect. So this is a grown man in his 50s crying because he doesn't want to go through this process again. And I'm not subscribing to any toxic masculinity here, but I would also burst into tears if they told me that was going to happen again. So on January 22nd, Leopold, yes, that Leopold, arrived with um, Dr. Stockmar who informed the Duchess that the end was near. If you'll remember, um, Stockmar was with Princess Charlotte when she passed away. However, the Duke was strong enough to write his final will, and his will is going to determine what happens to Victoria for the next 18 years of her life. So it, he, him writing this document is incredibly important. He left guardianship of Victoria solely to his wife. So if you remember when we saw this situation in the last episode with Princess Charlotte and um, her parents, her father left her custody to his family, his parents and his siblings, not to his wife. So the fact that the Duke left guardianship solely to Victoria is a huge deal. And I... I like to think that he remembered that she was left as regent, that Victoria's mother was left as regent to her older brother when he inherited his um, his dukedom and probably saw that she was capable and had, had trust in her, which is, a, is not a small thing. He also left his property and trust 
of his executors for his wife and child. But ultimately, the Duke of Kent died the next morning at the age of 52, and at the time of her father's death, Victoria became fourth in line to the throne. Um, shortly after the death of the Duke of Kent, the king died on January 29th. So at this point, upon the death of her father and grandfather, Victoria is third in line to the throne. So let's go ahead and fast forward into the childhood of Victoria. Her first year of life is so tumultuous. Um, the first thing they have to deal with is the impact of her father's death. So her mother is left alone in a foreign country where she barely speaks the language with two children, one of whom was in the direct line of succession to the throne of the United Kingdom. And it's not like she could just pick up and take off and go back to Germany. I mean, Victoria can't leave the country at this point. So with no other choice, the family returns to London and in the tumult of the death of the Duke of Kent, they're virtually ignored by the rest of the royal family. And I have mixed feelings about the Duchess of Kent because I can see... I can see two different sides of the story here, but I can't imagine what she's feeling in this instance. I'd probably be blaming the rest of the family on some level and be really salty towards them for not having a little compassion for, if not me, my two small children. And the only person she's really going to get any help from during this period is John Conroy, the Duke's equerry that he hired in 1817. She basically become increasingly dependent on him as the years of Victoria's childhood go by and that's ultimately going to color her relationship with her daughter for the next 20 years. She receives a little bit of money from her brother Leopold and some money that was the Duke's but it wasn't a lot to raise two little girls on and she ultimately decides to move back into Kensington Palace to raise her daughter. Before diving any further into Victoria's early years, I want to talk a bit about what else is going on with her mother during this time. So I've already said that her mother was alone in a foreign country where she barely spoke the language. She uprooted her life for this marriage. Her husband died suddenly a little over a year in, and her family is less than supportive of her or her daughter. And kind of, I've alluded to this already, but there's a tendency to paint the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy's as the villain in this story and I would more put that on Conroy than I would the Duchess but the older I've gotten the more my view on this matter has shifted at least in the respect of the Duchess. John Conroy can go um, suck a dick. He was hired as the Duke of Kent's equerry and he would have been a senior member of the staff of the Duke. He's likely very trusted by his boss and I can only imagine the Duchess taking a leaf out of her husband's book. My husband trusted him, so I feel like I don't have a choice but to trust him. And when she wasn't left with many places or people to turn to, John Conroy would have likely been a small blessing. He knew how to run a house. He knew how to function in this world. And he was a connection to her husband. I genuinely believe the Duchess simply was playing the best with the hand that she was dealt. And it's not her fault that John Conroy used her as a power grab. He sees a widowed woman who doesn't know the society that she's in with a potentially very valuable asset in her daughter that he is going to try and take advantage of, and that's exactly what he does. Um, the Duchess becomes extremely protective and controlling of Victoria's life, which I will talk about more in a moment. This is sometimes portrayed as her being a power-hungry and anxious mother who wants to be in complete control of her daughter, who will likely be queen one day, but I, again, think that's more on Conroy than the mother here. I also believe she was a mother who was doing her best and trusting the advice of those she trusted, like her brother, Leopold, who was the widowed, widower of the would-be Queen Charlotte and a social-climbing, influencing-seeking John Conroy. In short, I believe her intentions were from a place of love and protectiveness of her child, even though her methods were ultimately overbearing and suffocating, which who, who of us does not have somebody like that in our lives? 
That being said, intentions can't always keep actions from becoming toxic or traumatic. And the Duchess would implement a several would implement several questionable practices in raising her daughter. And that brings us to the Kensington system. So before we can talk about what the Kensington system is and what it did for Victoria, we need to talk about the motivations for raising Victoria the way she did. The Duchess was distrustful and disapproving of all of Victoria's paternal relatives. We're talking, after all, of the uncles who were notorious for their drinking debts, mistresses, and illegitimate children. To the Duchess, if they manage to get close to the little princess, they may corrupt her, and she literally could not afford that. She is responsible for bringing up the future monarch. To Conroy, if they got close to the princess, they may pull power and influence over the future queen away from him, and he couldn't have that either. She may, after all, need a regency if she became queen under age. Whoever controlled the heir controlled the future of the nation, and Victoria was a blank slate. She's only barely a year old at this point. So, with all of that in mind, the Duchess and John Conroy implemented the Kensington system to keep Victoria in their care and to associate her in the public eye with her mother, so a regency under the Duchess of Kent would be supported if it came to that. So what all did the Kensington system involve? Um, for starters, Victoria is kept under constant supervision. She was either with her mother, her governess, or a tutor at all times. She shared a room with her mother until she was 18 years old. She had to hold someone's hand when walking on the stairs. That means going up or coming down. She rarely left the palace except on a few notable occasions to visit approved, in air quotes, relatives. Her company and playmates were carefully selected by her mother or John Conroy, and they usually consisted of her older sister, Theodora, and Conroy's daughter, Victoire. Her every move was reported back to John Conroy. Ultimately, as she grows up, Victoria is going to come to resent her mother's reliance on Conroy. She outright hated the man. So that is the daily life, but what does that mean for her education? So Victoria's lessons begin every morning at 9 a.m. and they went until 11.30. At this point, she would take a break and get to work at 3 and then go back to work and work until 5 o'clock. And she had a pretty thorough education for an aristocratic girl of the 19th century. She studied writing, geography, arithmetic, and history. She had a writing master, a French dance instructor, a drawing master, and took lessons in singing and music. She also studied numerous foreign languages, which included German, French, Latin, and Greek. Victoria's mother believed that a busy girl stayed out of trouble, and Victoria grew accustomed to working hard and being watched while she did. Like her cousin Charlotte, Victoria had a flair for the dramatics, and I'd ventured to say she loved and expected to be the center of attention. Eager to show that her daughter was learning and learning well, the Duchess called for Victoria to be interviewed by the bishops of London and Richmond, and later the Archbishop of Canterbury, and by accounts, everyone was impressed with the depth of Victoria's knowledge and her instruction. So, what did Victoria look like? Victoria was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child, intent to favor the Hanoverian side of the family. She was a little on the plumper side, especially as a little girl. Her cousin, Prince George of Cambridge, went so far as to call her, quote, ugly, stupid, and fat on one occasion. As she grew up, she thinned out a little bit, but she never got much taller than 4 foot 11. You may even see 5 foot tall in some places. And as she moved into her adolescence, she was admired for her flawless skin and big blue eyes. And if you've ever seen any of the Winterhalter portraits of Victoria, or her coronation portrait, or there's one, it's a winter halter as well, of Victoria and Albert and their kids. She was a gorgeous young woman. She loved fashion and had her maid dress her hair in the latest style in the mornings. And another thing I love about Victoria is her sense of humor and willingness to joke, which isn't something we usually associate with the Victorians at all. In fact, they have a reputation for being pretty straight-laced and and kind of boring, and I believe the saying, we are not amused, is attributed to Victoria, even though it's debatable whether she actually said that or not. 
One of my favorite lines written by Victoria came from a letter she wrote to her sister, Theodora, regarding a portrait that she sat for and sent to her sister. I was very happy, Victoria writes, to hear that the portrait of my ugly face pleased you and that you find it, it like. Had it not been for your dear sake, I would not have spent so many tedious hours for Colin, the portrait artist. This sounds like something I would send to one of my sisters about a selfie I'd sent them, especially like if you're fishing, fishing for compliments. One thing we cannot ignore and that we've alluded to several times is that Victoria is the heir presumptive to the throne. That means she is one step behind her uncle in line to become queen. On June 26, 1830, her uncle George IV died, and this made his younger brother, William, Duke of Clarence, King of England. In the time since Charlotte died, Victoria had moved quickly up the line of succession. Her father died in 1820. Her second eldest uncle, the Duke of York, died in 1827. Both daughters of the Duke of Clarence died before the age of three, so King William IV had two children of his own that would have been ahead of Victoria in line, but they both passed away as small children. So by the time Victoria was nine years old, she was the first person in line to the throne. At this point, the Duchess of Kent decides to get a little bougie now that her daughter's position has changed. And after George IV died, Victoria's mother wrote, and by wrote, I mean that John Conroy penned the letter and the Duchess signed it to the Prime Minister demanding a significant change in money and position. The request was denied. She outwardly displayed any displeasure at having to be in the company of the Fitzclarences, the illegitimate children of the king. Now, keep in mind that the Duke of Clarence's wife, Queen Adelaide, who would become Queen Adelaide, had no problem having the Fitzclarences around and even um, was motherly towards them. There was one occasion she even made Queen Adelaide wait to be announced to visit the 11-year-old princess. This all screams of John Conroy to me. I, like, I'm not saying her mother is innocent, but I think she was very impressionable by John Conroy. She may have even been in love with him, and that's something that people have speculated on for years. Um, I'll mention it here, and then we will move on. So the Duchess and Conroy began to take Victoria on small progresses around the country, and this behavior infuriated King William with the Duchess. The first of them happened in 1830, and then there were three more trips that happened in 1832, 1834, and 1835. Victoria also hated these trips because she'd rather be at home with her things and her little dog Dash. She would also point out that these trips displeased the king, but the Duchess and Conroy would dismiss her concerns, seeing that the king was jealous. The constant parades and, quote, performances in public would make Victoria ill. In 1835, on one of these trips, Victoria came down with a pretty severe fever, and Conroy basically accused her of faking it to get out of appearing in public. To make matters even worse, while she was ill, Conroy tried to force her to appoint him as her private secretary, which would give him personal control over all of her incoming and outgoing correspondence. Even though she was sick, Victoria flat out refused. This would also be one of the instances that breeds a severe resentment towards her mother because of Conroy and how she viewed her mother letting um, Conroy treat her. A lot of drama followed during the coronation of her aunt and uncle. Um, as heir to the throne, it was expected that Victoria would attend the coronation of her uncle and aunt as king and queen. And the king even gave instructions that Victoria would walk behind his brothers in the procession. But the Duchess of Kent was not happy with this arrangement. She saw Victoria's position in the procession to be an insult to her social position and stated that the long ceremony would, quote, strain Victoria's health and refused to attend and refused to make Victoria attend. Everyone is scandalized by this. The newspapers even report that the Duchess refused to attend the King's coronation. Like, this was hot gossip in London. 
the Duchess ended up taking the princess away to the Isle of Wight, and Victoria was absolutely miserable in having to miss the coronation. I mean, this would have been a big affair. Actually, okay. If you want an entertaining story, go read about the coronation of William IV, uh, where we do not have time in the scope of this episode to do that. But it would have been a sight to behold, and I would have been pissed as a kid to miss that too. But during this time, Victoria is going to become a teenager. And in 1832, Victoria turns 13 years old. And this is a significant year because for for her birthday this summer, her mother gives her her very first journal. And this becomes a habit that Victoria would maintain for the rest of her life. What did I read? She had written somewhere along the lines of like 2,000 words a day and produced over millions of words by the time she died in 1901. It was insane. As the successive years passed, Victoria's mother and Conroy saw the chance of a regency happening dwindling fast. Um, the age of majority for Victoria would have been 18 years old, and at that point, she would have to be severely mentally ill for them to declare a regency. Victoria would reach her majority at the age of 18 and then would not require a regent to rule in her stead, and her mother and Conroy began a campaign to have Victoria's age of majority moved or a regency extended so that their influence over her would stretch longer. Um, there was talk about moving her age of majority from 18 to 21. Their fatal blunder was that they were forceful and dogmatic with Victoria, and they didn't account for the fact that Victoria was stubborn. She would not do things unless she somehow felt they were her idea. And being forced to accept a position or rule went against her nature. I mean, look back at the incident with Conroy trying to make himself her secretary while she was ill. I mean, the last thing I want to deal with when I'm sick is somebody getting up in my business and telling me what I need to do or not to do. Another person who's vying for influence over the young Victoria was her uncle Leopold. In the years since Charlotte's death, Leopold hung around England for a while, and he even arrived 10 days after the birth of Victoria. But by 1831, he was offered the throne of Belgium and accepted. But he still frequently wrote to her with advice and opinions on how a monarch should conduct themselves. So, one of my favorite parts of this part of Victoria's life is the beef between her uncle and the Duchess of Kent. So Victoria's mother and uncle squabbled with each other over Victoria and her role and her involvement as the heir to the throne because she should have been taking on significant responsibilities and should have been more publicly visible than she was. And this is something that really irked William. When Victoria was 16, um, the pair beefed over Victoria's confirmation. So this, if I understand how confirmation works, it's a ceremony that basically affirms your official membership as part of a church or an organization. And for Victoria, this was to have happened at her when she turned 16. The Duchess wanted the, the Duchess of Kent wanted the Duchess of Northumberland one of Victoria's governesses, to be dismissed, but the king absolutely refused. So he wrote to the Bishop of London that Victoria couldn't be confirmed in any of the chapels royal in London, so the Duchess had to back down about the deal with the Duchess of Northumberland. When the king suggested celebrating Victoria's confirmation at Kew Palace and that Victoria and her mother go with him to visit a hospital, the Duchess refused. So... The confirmation ended up happening at the Chapel Royal in St. James's Palace. We're going to visit this particular chapel several times over the course of Victoria's life. The best part of the entire thing is that when John Conroy attempted to enter the chapel during the ceremony, the king had him kicked out. And much like her cousin Charlotte, Victoria was shaken from being in the middle of all of the fighting between the adults in her life. Later, her mother gave her an after all I've done and sacrificed for you, you should be grateful letter to wrap up the day. Like, instead of just saying it to her face, her mother wrote her a letter and sent it to her. 
classy. I think we all have a story like that with a mother figure in our lives. So, eventually Victoria is going to have to become queen. And I hope that's not a spoiler for any of you um, who are listening. The continuing beef between the Duchess of Kent and the king ended up becoming very, very public. In August of 1836, the king invited Victoria and her mother to celebrate Queen Adelaide's birthday at Windsor. But the Duchess said no because she wanted to celebrate her own birthday. But they would be there on a different day, August 20th. On a side note, that is my birthday. The king ended up stopping by Kensington Palace before he returned to Windsor that day and was infuriated to see that the Duchess had taken over 17 more rooms than she was allowed to have. Apparently, she had asked for more space, and the king had told her no. He was appalled and angered by the extent of the modifications that she had made to the space. So, he returned to Windsor, and after dinner that night, he first told Victoria how happy he was to see her and wish she could visit more often, then approached the Duchess and chewed her ass out in front of the entire court. He accused her of taking rooms, quote, not only without his consent, but contrary to his demands, and that sh- and said that, quote, he neither understood nor would endure conduct so disrespectful to him. He apparently didn't have all of his rage out in this instance because the very next day at his birthday dinner, he got up, after several drinks, to make a speech and decided to dress her down in front of the hundred guests present. And he said, I trust in God that my life may be spared for nine months longer, after which period, in the event of my death, no regency would take place. I should then have the satisfaction of leaving the royal authority to the personal exercise of that young lady, the heiress presumptive of the crown, and not in the hands of a person now near me who is surrounded by evil advisers and who is herself incompetent to act with propriety in the station in which she would be placed. I have no hesitation in saying that I have been insulted, grossly and continually insulted by that person, but I am determined to endure no longer a course of behavior so disrespectful to me. He also went on to discuss how furious he was that Victoria, quote, had been kept from court. He went on to further add, She has been repeatedly kept from my drawing rooms, at which she ought always to have been present, but I am fully resolved that this shall not happen again. I would have her know that I am king, and I am determined to make my authority respected, and for the future I shall insist and command that the princess do upon all occasions appear at my court, as is her duty to do. I'm just going to leave that there, because I think he, he can't say it any better himself. So, the first hurdle to avoiding a regency is Victoria hitting her 18th birthday. The king, as it turned out, wasn't in amazing health, and the concern that he wouldn't make it to Victoria's 18th birthday was real. So on May 19th of 1837, the king sent Victoria a letter to be seen by her eyes only, but that didn't stop Conroy from trying to intercept it, and the Duchess tried to snatch it out of the hand of the Lord delivering the message. Victoria read the letter in the presence of her mother instead of on her own. But basically, the king had decided to give Victoria her own establishment when she turned 18. And that means she would get 10,000 pounds a year in an allowance from Parliament for her own personal use. He wanted her to appoint her own keeper of the privy purse and hire her own lady. So a keeper of the privy purse would be somebody that is in charge of her finances. Like, I guess it's like a 19th century CPA or accountant. And basically, he wanted her to set up her own mini-court separate from her mother's control. The second hurdle, the Duchess and Conroy were not happy about this arrangement, and the Duchess basically browbeat Victoria into refusing the money and the establishment. She wrote a letter that Victoria then had to copy down, refusing the money, and adding that she was too young and inexperienced, and that she wished to remain in the care of her mother. The king was not fooled. He saw right through this, and he was mad. The last thing, standing between Victoria and the throne, was 
whether the king was going to survive until her 18th birthday on May 24th. And he did. But just barely. I think he made it three weeks. The Duchess doubled down on her efforts to get Victoria to accept Conroy as her advisor, telling her the only thing people like about her is the fact that she is young and a female. She kept it up the entire month of June, as the king was dying. But Victoria continued to refuse to make Conroy her advisor. By the night of June 19th, it was very apparent that the king was not going to make it much longer. And at 6 a.m. on June 20th, Lord Cunningham, the Lord Chamberlain, and the Archbishop of Canterbury met with Victoria, who was wearing her nightclothes when she received the news that she was now the Queen of the United Kingdom. So, so Victoria was now the fifth Queen Regnant. So I don't think we've taken a moment to stop and talk about the different queenly titles that exist and queens can have very distinct titles based on their role. So we've talked about Queen Regnant. This is a queen who rules in her own right. That means she inherited from the last monarch. So our queens regnant at this point have been Elizabeth I, Mary I, Mary II, and Queen Anne. The next queenly title a woman can hold is the title of Queen Consort. This is the wife of the current monarch. So right now that would be uh, Queen Camilla. We can, we'll stick a pin in that discussion for a different time. Then you have the Queen Regent. This is a queen who is ruling in the place of someone who is either not capable or old enough to rule in their own right. But to be a Queen Regent, you have to have been a Queen Consort, I believe, first. This is typically if the person in charge was out of town, too young or ill. A great example would be Catherine of Aragon filling this role for Henry VIII on several different occasions. The next type of queen we can have is the Queen Dowager. This is the widow of a king. And the Queen Mother. This is typically the widow of a king and a mother to the next monarch. So Victoria's mother would not have been a queen mother or a queen dowager because her husband was never king to begin with. Victoria was a queen regnant, so she inherited the role in her own right. So now, for the meat and potatoes, her first act as queen, the very, very first thing Victoria did after receiving the news that she was queen was to request to spend an hour by herself and the second thing was that her bed be moved from her mother's room and into her own room. Because, yes, at the age of 18, she was still sleeping in the same room as her mother. She then met with her privy counselors, who were all very impressed by the young queen. And she basically got straight to work that day meeting with her ministers and actively avoiding her mother and John Conroy. Her first moments as queen were probably just filled with like uproarious good times if I was Victoria and I had been kept under lock and key. She was basically under house arrest the first 18 years of her life and when she suddenly had queenly duties to fulfill, she was energized and delighted by the work. She was so excited to have something productive to do. In July of 1837, Victoria left Kensington Palace behind and moved into Buckingham Palace, which wasn't entirely ready to be lived in, but new queen who dis. I'm sure Victoria would have preferred to be on her own, but since she was still an unmarried young woman in the beginning of what would become known as the Victorian era, she still had to share a roof with her mother. So her solution to this problem was to banish her mother to the far other end of the palace and refuse to see her. And the next major thing to take place is a coronation, because once, once you have inherited the throne, you then need to make a public spectacle of becoming the monarch. So her coronation takes place on June 28, 1838, almost one year exactly after she ascended the throne. 
Her coronation would be the first time members of the House of Commons were invited to Westminster Abbey for the coronation. And she had a new crown commissioned because it was believed that St. Edward's crown, which had been made for King Charles II, and the imperial crown worn by both of her uncles would be too heavy for her teeny tiny little head. And according to accounts in Victoria's journals, this is how the day went. She was woken up that morning because of the guns being fired in the park in her honor. She finally got out of bed and got ready around 7 a.m. She began her progress at 10 a.m. in the state coach, of which she witnessed as her coach drove through the streets on the way to the ceremony. She noted, It was a fine day, and the crowds of people exceeded what I have ever seen. Many as there were the day I went to the city, it was nothing, nothing to the multitudes, the millions of my loyal subjects, who were assembled in every spot to witness the procession. Their good humor and excessive loyalty was beyond everything, and I really cannot say how proud I feel to be the queen of such a nation. I was alarmed at times for fear that the people would be crushed and squeezed on account of the tremendous rush and pressure. She then reached the abbey around 11.30 and went into the robing room where she met her eight train bearers. The whole ceremony ended up lasting five hours and there were several hiccups, but ultimately it was a successful ceremony. We are going to leave Victoria right here at the beginning of the second longest reign in British history. She's 19 years old and sitting at the helm of what would be the most powerful empire on earth in the 19th century. We'll pick up with her next time when she becomes a wife and mother and sees the first major scandals of her career. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Broad Chronicles. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review on your favorite podcatcher, or you can reach out to the show at The Broad Chronicles Pod on Instagram.